Hello, and welcome back to The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and I'd like to thank you for rejoining me in Episode 2, Revelation and Unity. We are about to begin the part of our story that I have been looking forward to the least, Holy Grounds. The life of the Prophet, and to a lesser extent the lives of his contemporaries, are a core part of the religious narratives of hundreds of millions of my co-religionists. As such, there is literally no account I can give which will be considered satisfactory by all, as there have been, are, and will be, many rhetorical battles fought over defining and interpreting this history. I personally find disagreement over an issue to be a sign of intellectual engagement with it, so I have absolutely no problem with all this contention. It's just wading into it that I would rather avoid. I'd like to remind listeners that the show's focus is on the caliphs, and while he is the first leader of the Ummah, the Society of Muslims, the Prophet does not technically qualify as a caliph. The word caliph comes from the Arabic khalifa, which is short for Khalifa Rasulullah, literally the successor to God's prophet. Therefore, we can avoid a deep inspection of the life of the prophet and just relate the parts of his journey that are absolutely necessary for contextualizing the first caliphate. It's important for us to discuss the historicity of the story you're about to be told. If you went around today looking for an account of the life of the prophet Muhammad, you will, broadly speaking, find two kinds of histories, classical ones that rely on Arabic sources and revisionist ones that deny the validity of Arabic sources. We'll be relying a great deal on these Arabic sources in this podcast, so you're about to hear a summary of the classical view. The first person to contribute to this view with a written account was an Ibn Ishaq, or son of Isaac, who was born and raised in Medina and spent much of his time collecting all the stories told about the Prophet. He'll reappear later in this podcast as he does get hired by a caliph, but it's important to note that he was writing over a century after the prophet had passed away. His original works have been lost and survive only as extensive quotations which a later author, Ibn Hisham, compiled into an actual biography of the prophet. More troublingly still, Ibn Hisham had done this in part because of the many complaints against the reliability of some of the narrations in Ibn Ishaq's lengthy account. So our story relies on a biographical revision of a collection of verbal testimony collected over a hundred years after the events in question took place, written by someone who wasn't even alive to meet any of the people who had known the Prophet and indeed lived in a world much changed by the incredible success the Arabs had encountered over the last century. I'm making it sound pretty bad. Basically, Ibn Ishaq wanted to create something dazzlingly comprehensive, and that's why he went about writing everything he'd heard about the Prophet, an 8th century data dump, if you will. It's also why Ibn Hisham had to compile a more useful biography by leaving out the least reliable of those narrations. So why did it take the Arabs over a hundred years to write down the history of their prophet? Why did Ibn Ishaq have to rely on verbal narrations? The thing is, 
The Arabs were still overwhelmingly dependent on oral transmission at this point. The Arabic script had gone through much refinement, but the purposes of that transformation were largely for official state functions and the accurate dissemination of the Qur'an, both of which had very little impact on the Arabs of Mecca and Medina, who prided themselves on having been the source of Islam. They all had stories to tell about the Prophet, and they argued over some of their details after Ibn Ishaq wrote down everything he'd heard them say. The revisionist view justifies its neglect of Arab histories by stressing this orality. The Arabs had no literary tradition, and oral histories are prone to distortion, especially in turbulent times, as different generations tell their history in ways that justify their present. These are excellent points to keep in mind, and some people find the revisionist constructions of early Islamic history compelling, while others simply find them offensive. Without the oral sources, there are no accounts of the Prophet's life, and so revisionist histories sometimes reach the conclusion that the Prophet is a mythical figure. Before we can discuss the life of the Prophet, I need to tell you a little bit more about the fascinating city he was born in. We've already talked about the differences between settled and nomadic peoples, and how arable land is a necessary component of settled life. Well, pre-Islamic Mecca goes against all that and gives us a unique example of a town with no arable land, populated by nomads. This was only possible because of the exceptional circumstances it found itself in. One, it had a plentiful freshwater well called Zamzam. Two, situated at a crossroads in the western caravan routes, it was the chief beneficiary of the bustling trade with the Byzantine Empire. And three, it had a religious site that was holy to the pagans of the desert, the Kaaba. In it, the various tribal idols were arranged in a manner reflecting the standing of the different tribes, with the strongest tribes having the biggest idols placed in the most prominent spots. Mecca and its Kaaba were the center of Arab cultural life. In his A History of Islamic Societies, Ira Lapidus writes, and I quote, The harsh conditions and terrain of the Arabian Peninsula meant a near-constant state of conflict between the local tribes, but once a year they would declare a truce and converge upon Mecca in an annual pilgrimage. Up to the 7th century, this journey was intended for religious reasons by the pagan Arabs to pay homage to their shrine and to drink from the Zamzam well. However, it was also the time each year that disputes would be arbitrated, debts would be resolved, and trading would occur at Meccan fairs. These annual events gave the tribes a sense of common identity and made Mecca an important focus of the peninsula. I wanted to quote this bit to give you an idea of just how much Mecca meant to the local tribes at the time. And the time was around the year 570 AD. This became known to the Arabs as the Year of the Elephant, because in it, Abraha, the mutinous Aksumite general we met last episode who seized power in the Yemen, marched an elephant all the way to Mecca. It was actually him or his son, but it doesn't really matter. The elephant was one of many on a military expedition meant to either quell or cow the Arabs. This apparently terrifying show of force failed abruptly right outside the city. Classical Arab histories contain many colorful accounts of both the reasons for this invasion and its miraculous defeat, but as this event is mentioned in the Qur'an as a time when God protected the city of Mecca, their explanations are rooted in religious interpretation. I'm just mentioning the year of the elephant, because it also happened to be the year in which the Prophet was born. The Prophet Muhammad wasallam, was born to the Banu Hashim clan, the sons of Hashim named for his great-grandfather, of the tribe Quraysh. The Quraysh were at the time the preeminent tribe of Mecca, 
and growing rich from their active engagement in trade. The Hashemites, another name for the Banu Hashem, were the custodians of the Kaaba, and, while I don't want to push the analogy too far, they can be thought of as the tribe's priestly clan. The Prophet's father died before his birth, having fallen ill on a trading trip north in his mid-twenties, and this greatly compromised the Prophet's own potential in tribal terms. For in a society where paternal ancestry was everything, not having a father robbed you of a source of pride and belonging. To make matters worse, his mother would also pass away from disease, completing his orphanhood at the young age of seven. After these early tragedies, Muhammad was taken care of by his paternal grandfather, who by now had become the clan's leader. When he died two years later, he bequeathed both his position and his grandson to his son, Abu Talib. Muhammad's uncle Abu Talib took good care of him, raising him as one of his own. When Muhammad was 12 years old, Abu Talib took him on his first caravan trip, where Muhammad made friends with another young Meccan, a 10-year-old boy named Abu Bakr. We'll be talking about Abu Bakr more very soon. In Mecca, Muhammad steadily gained a reputation for honesty, and at the age of 25 was hired by a wealthy widow named Khadija to conduct trade on her behalf. It's said that Khadija was responsible for fully half the trade that flowed through Mecca, and Muhammad's uprightness made her twice as much money as any previous trip north. She was so impressed by his honesty that she insisted on meeting him in person, where he must have impressed her even more because afterwards she proposed marriage. Their uncles agreed upon the details, and the two were wed. They lived in Mecca, where Muhammad's reputation for honesty had earned him the nickname Al-Amin, or the Trustworthy. He showed no tribal or clan bias and shunned pagan practices, so it can be said that he exhibited Hanafi tendencies. He would retreat to a nearby mountain to meditate in solitude, especially during the months of the truce season. During one of those retreats, while meditating in a mountain cave, Muhammad received his first revelation at the age of 40, around the year 610 AD. A voice delivered to him the first verses of what would become the Qur'an, introduced itself as the angel Gabriel, and gave him the fateful news. He was a prophet chosen by the one true God to deliver his word to Muhammad's people. Muhammad was understandably shaken by this news, but after discussing things with his wife and a learned cousin of hers, he was convinced of his new responsibility. At the time, Muhammad's household was comprised of his wife, three daughters, Zayd, a slave of Khadija's whom Muhammad had manumitted and considered an adopted son, and whom I guess I'm indirectly indebted to for my name, so thanks, and his young nephew Adi, son of Abi Talib. Remember this name. Adi bin Abi Talib had been sent to live with Muhammad at the age of five, three or four years before the first revelation. These were the first converts to Islam, and they were soon joined by Abu Bakr and a few other close friends of Muhammad, who had chosen to preach privately at first. About three years in, Muhammad's followers numbered a humble, 30 or so individuals, with the religion's egalitarian virtues proving especially attractive to Mecca's ill-treated populations, slaves, tribeless people, and those who couldn't abide by the practices of a tribal life. It was at this point that friction with the pagans came to a head. The Muslims had begun to recite the revelations publicly, and this elicited a hostile reaction from other Qurayshi clans. The Prophet was mocked, and his poorer and weaker followers harassed, sometimes even tormented, to extract renunciations of faith from them. 
there wasn't much the Muslims could do to shield themselves from this treatment, and the Prophet advised whomever could afford it to immigrate to the nearby kingdom of Aksum, a journey that 16 Muslims undertook, almost half the community. Growing tired of his denunciation of their idols, the Quraysh tried to get the Prophet to stop. When they found he would not relent, they tried to convince Abu Talib, the Hashemite clan's leader, to let them put an end to all this by allowing them to kill his nephew. His seething, downright threatening refusal encouraged the Muslims to preach more openly, and their ranks swelled with more of Mecca's underprivileged and monotheistic alike. This alarmed the Quraysh, who increased their persecution, even drawing up a deed promising to ostracize the whole Hashemite clan, all Muslims, and anyone else who supported them. This isolation lasted for three years and ended in what Muhammad referred to as the Year of Sorrows, because in it, both his beloved wife Khadija and his uncle and protector Abu Talib passed away. The Quraysh may have reasoned that without them Islam no longer posed any sort of threat, and they were right to some extent. After three years of being so publicly shunned by his own tribe, the Prophet had a difficult time getting anyone to take him seriously. He tried preaching in other cities, but was met with failure and derision. During the next pilgrimage season, however, in the year 620 AD, Muhammad was approached by six men of the Khazraj clan who lived in the city of Yathrib. They had heard of him and wanted to learn more about his religion, which they promptly embraced. The next year they came back with a few more people and a dozen of them took a pledge to believe in the Prophet and renounce certain sins. The Prophet sent a man with them back to Yathrib to teach them more about Islam, and the next year, 75 Muslims returned to Muhammad during the pilgrimage season and took another pledge to protect the Prophet and abide by his revelations. The Meccans were alarmed by this unexpected success and sent a delegation to protest to the tribes of Aws al-Khazraj who had taken part in the pledge. They also got serious about ending Islam before it got any bigger and hatched a plot to kill Muhammad. The Prophet had already received a revelation commanding him to move his ummah to Yathrib, and his community had stealthily been leaving for the city since that second pledge was taken with the Aws and Khazraj. The Prophet was one of the last to leave. He and Abu Bakr left Mecca the very day his planned assassination was to take place. Forget the year of the elephant, this migration, or hijrah, would forever be the event that marks the beginning of the Muslim calendar, but that will be decreed later by the third caliph. This all happened in the summer of 622 AD. From then on, Yathrib became known as Medina al-Rasul or al-Medina al-Munawwara, which translate as the Prophet's city and the enlightened city respectively. Medina for short. It was made up mainly of the two tribes that had taken the pledge, the Aws and Khazraj, and a number of Jewish tribes. Some sources claim the Jews of Medina considered themselves descendants of Arab tribes that had embraced Judaism, while others say that they thought of themselves as descendants of refugees who had fled Roman persecution back in the 2nd century. Whatever their origins, the Jews of Medina were unhappy with the new state of affairs. The Aws and Khazraj were previously feuding tribes, and their newfound unity under a holy man on a mission seriously undermined the local influence and standing of the now Jewish minority. Muhammad realized that the threat from Quraysh could only grow now that his ummah had moved out of Mecca, and he went about countering it in three ways. First, he immediately began sending emissaries to other tribes, asking them to not lend their support to the Quraysh should they come asking for it. Second, 
he sent small groups of Muslims on reconnaissance missions against the Qurayshis. They gathered information to keep tabs on them and help anticipate their next moves. Finally, he began targeting their trade caravans with small raids to disrupt their business, something he could do easily since Medina was close to the trade route but far north of Mecca. In the second year after the migration, so 624 AD, a Meccan trade caravan owned by Abu Sufyan, one of Quraysh's most prominent leaders, was returning from its journey to Syria. Abu Sufyan belonged to the Umayyad clan of Quraysh, which was the clan most closely related to the Hashemites. If the Hashemites were kind of like a priestly clan, the Umayyads were kind of like an aristocratic one. Note the repeated kind of likes. I don't want you to take what I'm saying definitively. I'm only trying to give you some first impressions that will serve you well going forward. The Umayyads were rich, well-connected, and could often even read and write. These two clans will play a very central role in future developments, so keep in mind that the Umayyads were Quraysh aristocrats, while the Hashemites, the Prophet's clan, were the Kaaba's custodians. Anyway, back to the trade caravan. Abu Sufyan himself was leading it, and he heard that the Muslims were planning to come out in force against him. He sent a rider to Mecca with the news, urging them to gather an army that could protect the caravan and deal with the raiders. Over 1,000 men rode out of Mecca and met Abu Sufyan's caravan by some water wells at a place called Badr. The Muslims numbered a little over 300, but managed an astonishing victory. They lost less than 20 men, but managed to rout the entire Meccan army, killing almost 50 while capturing another 70, whom they later ransomed off. This victory against an army almost three times their size brought the Muslims and Islam itself much prestige among the Arab tribes, who became more receptive to its prophet now that he had such a victory under his belt. The Qurayshis didn't take this humiliating defeat sitting down, and the next year, again prompted by Abu Sufyan, who had now become the tribe's leader, they assembled a force of 3,000 men to attack Medina and its Muslims. The battle took place at Mount Uhud, and it seemed to be going well for the Muslims at first. The Meccan cavalry quickly retreated, and the Muslims thought they'd won the day. The retreat turned out to be a feign, and the cavalry rode back around the now undefended mountain passes, surprising the Muslims from behind. The Prophet was wounded in the fighting, and the Qurayshis may have thought he was killed because they rode back to Mecca the next day in triumph. If their victory at Badr had brought the Muslims glory, their defeat at Mount Uhud had taken all that away and then some. Many tribes renounced their ties to the community, and there was open hostility to Muslims even in Medina itself. Revelations came explaining how this loss was a test of faith, and indeed, it does seem to have been quite a testing time. Accusations of treachery led to civil strife in Medina, and a number of Jewish tribes were expelled. Two years later, these tribes helped the Quraysh put together and arm a force of 10,000 to attack Medina. This was thought to be an overwhelmingly large army that could wipe out all of Muhammad's followers. The Muslims could only rally a force of 3,000 and went to work digging a trench around the city, an idea introduced to them by a Persian convert, the tactic being previously unknown to the desert tribes. This succeeded in keeping the Meccans and their allies from the decisive battle they were hoping for. They had to settle for besieging the city instead, and tried to convince some of the tribes in Medina to rebel against the Muslims. Their efforts were unsuccessful in breaking the city's defenses, 
but did sow new divisions between the people of Medina. The Battle of the Trench, as the siege came to be called, lasted for 25 days and was considered a failure for the Qurayshis who watched their allies lose faith in them and peel away tribe after tribe. They were ultimately forced to retreat to Mecca with nothing to show for all their bluster. Ever since their move to Medina, the Muslims had not once been back to Mecca nor seen its sanctuary, the Kaaba. Despite its importance to the pagans, Islam still considered it to be a holy site, attributing its construction to the Prophet Abraham and his descendants. Muslims were enjoined to visit it during the tribal truce season, but in the name of God and not any of the pagan idols. The hostility of the Meccans clearly made this pilgrimage impossible, but in the year 628 AD, one year after the Battle of the Trench, the Prophet led 1400 Muslims to Mecca in hopes of being allowed to visit the Kaaba. The Meccans were understandably alarmed and sent a force of 200 cavalrymen to block the road from Medina. The Muslims tried to avoid them by going around the mountain paths and camped close to Mecca in a valley called Hudaybiyah. It was there that the Prophet entered into negotiations with the Quraysh, sending an Umayyad follower of his named Uthman to speak to them. They agreed on a ten-year truce. There would no longer be any battles between the people of Mecca and Medina, and the Muslims would be allowed to return to Mecca to perform the pilgrimage next year. This treaty greatly enhanced Islam's appeal to the other Arabs. The Quraysh were one of northern Arabia's richest and most prestigious tribes, and here they were capitulating to someone they had gone to great lengths to discredit and undermine. The Muslims became much more active in inviting other tribes to Islam, and relief from their Meccan foes allowed them to begin addressing other threats to their community. For example, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Muslims had sent emissaries to all the states bordering the desert. One of these emissaries were killed by the Ghassanids, and in the year 629 AD, the Prophet sent a force of 3,000 men to make sure the Muslims did not face a continued threat from the Arabs to their north. This army ran into a much larger Byzantine one around the village of Mu'ta, a little east of the Dead Sea in modern-day Jordan. As luck would have it, the emperor himself was visiting the area, and so it was exceptionally reinforced. The Arabs were badly defeated, and several prominent Muslims, including the Prophet's uncle and Zayd, his adopted servant, were killed in it. In the second year of the truce, the Qurayshis violated it by attacking an ally of the Muslims. After negotiations went nowhere, the Prophet put together an army of 10,000 men and marched straight to Mecca, conquering the city with minimal conflict. He declared a general amnesty for everyone except a handful he held especially responsible for the enmity between the Quraysh and the Muslims, and proceeded to order the destruction of all the idols in and around the Kaaba. With its surrender, the vast majority of Mecca's population accepted Islam. While this was a historic event in the Prophet's journey, this conquest had many of Quraysh's rival tribes weighing their chances of replacing them as custodians of the pagan sanctuary. Within a few months, the Battle of Hunayn, between 12,000 Muslims and 20,000 other Arabs, ended in a decisive victory for the Muslims. Following this, the Prophet marched an army 30,000 strong to Tabuk, today in northwestern Saudi Arabia, after hearing rumors of an imminent Byzantine invasion. He camped there for 20 days, made new alliances with local tribes, then withdrew back south when no sign of an enemy army was found. 
By the end of the year, with the conversion of the city of Ta'if, all of the Hijazi tribes had accepted Islam and they proceeded to spread it to other tribes across the peninsula. Two years later, in 632 AD, the Prophet led the first completely Islamic pilgrimage. He delivered a farewell sermon on a mountain just east of Mecca, then returned to Medina. A few months later, he fell ill and passed away. This can be considered a greatly trimmed-down version of the official story of the Prophet's life. I'm sorry if it felt a bit rushed. While there are a lot of interesting details worth hearing about, I can't say I wanted to linger on this subject. I didn't just leave out everything controversial, contested, or miraculous. I left out a whole lot more in an effort to relay only the stuff that matters to our story going forward. We will revisit some parts of the Prophet's life in the next few episodes, as the early caliphs were contemporaries of his, but the birth of Islam is now largely behind us. Join me next time to learn how the Ummah dealt with the loss of its Prophet and why some say it was split ever since. Here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. Music